the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. This episode of the Paul Leslie Hour is debuting January first, twenty twenty-one. This is an interview with author, music critic, jazz historian Will Friedwald. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour and all we hope to accomplish in 2021, which is bringing more content like this directly to you, just go to thepaulleslie.com. Up at the top, click where it says support the show. It only takes a moment. It makes a world of difference. And now, let's get into the interview with Will Friedwald, right here on the Paul Leslie Hour. Hey, hey, it's Paul. Yes, it's me. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome all. Welcome to 2021 and beyond. We have with us a champion of jazz, the great American songs, and the men and women who sing them. Will Friedwall is an author who has written 10 books, including the acclaimed Sinatra, The Song Is You, Stardust Melodies, and most recently, Straighten Up and Fly Right, The Life and Music of Nat King Cole. He also writes about music and popular culture for publications like The Wall Street Journal, Vanity Fair, and Playboy. Will Friedwall has written more than 600 liner notes for CDs. I can assure him and our listeners this is a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year. Let's hope. <laughs> Two oh two one is uh, better. <laughs> always, we got always. no place to go but up. Anyhow, <laughs> well spoken. Well, I think most stories are best from the beginning. So tell us a little bit if if we could get a snapshot of what life was like when you were growing up in the household. What would we What would we see? And what would we hear? Oh boy! You know the funny the the, the funny thing is today. If you were coming into, like, listening to something or a, a kind of music or, uh, you know, any aspect of culture, with what's out there, I, I can imagine it, it, you you would be overwhelmed. But from the other way around, it was very underwhelmed. I remember to get, like, one record, you know, you, you, if, if you were, like, interested in, in uh, the same kind of music that uh, I write about, you could only do it one record at a time, sometimes just one song at a time. And now you get everything at once. But yeah. And um, I remember when I was a kid looking for Lester Young records and there was almost nothing in print. And I remember there was there were some albums by the, the there was a, a, a jazz organ player by the name of Larry Young. And whenever I go to the Young bin, I would find Larry Young. But it was just hard to find Lester Young. And now, you know, now you could go to YouTube or Spotify and Apple Music and find hours and hours of Lester Young just, just waiting for it. But yeah, and I don't know how that affects your uh, um, appreciation of something. You know, maybe it's better to get everything at once and then work your way through it. I don't know. But I remember that's my main memory is trying to piece everything together one record at a time of, of being younger. And my, my dad was a big music buffalo, but my, my folks were divorced. So I, I didn't see my dad more than once a week. So you know, he was, of course, incredibly helpful in me trying to figure out how everything worked. But, but yeah, that, that's my main, that's the thing that flashed to mind when you asked that question. It was trying to put together, 
you know, the way the story of American music, one record at a time. That's my main memory of uh, uh, my ute, my my misspent ute, as we say in Brooklyn. Well, I always like to give credit where credit is due and also point people in the direction of very interesting things. There is a podcast Wilfried Wald did, the Malton on Movies podcast, and I thought this was very interesting for a man like yourself who's a, a jazz lover. You were conceived in New Orleans. Mm. <laughs> interesting you remembered that fact. Yeah, my... my Leonard is a really old and dear friend, and I'm glad. And for many years, I, I, I wanted to do that show with him, but he wouldn't. He never did it remotely up until the start of the pandemic. He always did it uh, in person, not just you know locally, but uh, in person. So we finally got to do it, and that was a treat. We did it at the start of the pandemic. But yeah, my my um my dad was a big jazz fan, so he wanted to be in New Orleans. He made up some excuse for his parents. Uh, that he wanted to go to Tulane University for some other reason. and um, But he was there just to hear the music. And the, the amazing thing was, at that time, around the late 50s and early 60s, a lot, you know, that generation of jazz musicians, unlike, say, later ones, they didn't particularly have terrible, you know, drug problems or anything like that. So a lot of them were still alive. They were only in, like, the 50s and 60s. So a lot of the guys that actually created jazz, a lot of, like, the very, very... You know, people that had heard Buddy Bolden, people that knew King Oliver and Jelly Roll Morton were, were still alive and still playing. So, you know, it was kind of a mecca for traditional jazz fans in the early 60s. And my dad was one of the co-founders of Preservation Hall. And if you talk to, um, the car, you know, the, uh, the, the managers, owners of Preservation Hall, the Jaffe family, Alan and Sandra, and then they, they talk about my dad all the time. So, you know, that's a nice acknowledgement. But yeah, my dad was a huge jazz fan and my mom, was from Mobile, Alabama, and they met at Tulane, and they got married. And uh, but by the time I came along, they had moved back up to New York. But uh, yes, as you say, it was true. And you are in New York at the moment. Yes, I am. I am in happy, peppy, COVID-free New York. <laughs> We're all actually we're pretty sunny, pretty sunny morning. Yes. Do you think New York City is going to return? in your opinion, as a, a place where people seek, they seek out going there, they they want to be there, they want to even just see a, a, a music performance or some kind of show there? You know, I don't think it's a question of uh, if, I think it's just a question of when, you know, the, the pandemic's been devastating for, obviously, uh, music and theater, and um, but I think it's it's got, you know, it, it, it's going to come... Uh, for all the same reasons that New York became the center to begin with. It's still the center. It's not like some other place, you know, <laughs> still stepped into the breach, you know? <laughs> it's interesting. I was just rereading the, the, the biography of Julie Stein, and he was talking about how, you know, Chicago had its moment. Julie Stein grew up in Chicago, and he was a band leader in Chicago in the 20s. And, you know, Chicago was really roaring, as was Kansas City, as was New Orleans. But New, or but New York became like this this magnet that sucked in all the talent from all over the country. And it continues to do so. That That's the only thing I think that would have stopped New York is if some other place, you know, had somehow beaten the COVID and attracted everybody and had pulled the attention away from New York. But no, that, that hasn't happened. So, you know, it's going to happen gradually, but yes, I, I'm sure that um, uh, over the next two or three years, New York is going to be right back where it was just because, you know, it's just, what is it? Uh, 
what is it that a boys of nature, a boys of vacuum? You know that that that's the place. You know that 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 that's still it's still the focal point, even though you know the the sound the volume is pretty low right now, and then the noise is muffled. But you know it's gonna it, it has to come back just because of the laws of the physics as much as anything. <laughs> it's just a question of when. The melody lingers on. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't hear it, but but it's out there. <laughs> yeah. I was reading in the acknowledgement of the the Nat King Cole book, which came out this year, and you wrote about flipping a coin, whether you would write about Sinatra or Nat King Cole. And that was interesting to me. But what was it like for you to finally write, as you called it, your dream book? You know, it's 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 a two sided coin to coin a to coin a phrase. <laughs> the if I had. Uh, well, for one thing, the, the the state of publishing is just such a weird place these days. There would have been a much bigger audience, and and it would have been much more of a, a profit enterprise had I written it, you know, ten twenty years ago. So there's always that, and I can't discount that. But at the same time, I've been gathering, you know, so much information over the last thirty years. I mean, it's always in the back of my mind. I knew I was going to write this book. It was just a question of when. And then in 2017. I said to myself, self, I says, it's going to be the, the Nat King Cole Centennial in 2019. And if I don't do it now, you know, then I'll regret it because this is kind of the perfect moment. So I started it again in 2017. And uh, I, I had a fantastic research associate, a, a guy by the name of Jordan Taylor, who, like me, has been gathering info on that for all these years. So uh, between the two of us, we had, you know, tons, tons of new information. And um, uh, not only about the music, but also about his uh, personal life, also about the biography. So that's one reason it's it's much more of a biography, say, than the Frank Sinatra book. Of course, there's been so many you know biographies of Sinatra, both good and and horrendous. But um, uh, you know, with, with Sinatra, I just deliberately decided to just concentrate almost exclusively on the music and 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 not so much on the personal life. Whereas with Nat, I I decided. Uh, because there was a lot of new information about his biography, about you know him personally, I decided to make it more of a well-rounded biography. But of course, the focus is primarily about the music. You know, the music is what drives the whole enterprise. You know, I mean, in both cases, you know, we wouldn't be talking about them if it weren't for the music. That's the whole reason we're interested in them to begin with. And yeah, I was, you know, like I say, I had the advantage of uh, you know gathering all this stuff and. And also that I, I interviewed over the years, I interviewed, you know, dozens of people who had worked with Nat. So it's almost like I was working steadily on this book for 20 or 30 years before, you know, 2017 when I signed the contract to, to, to write it. So yeah, it, it, it's been an interesting journey, as everybody says in every interview ever. <laughs> well, you mentioned doing these interviews and there's somebody that I'm hoping you can tell us about. I knew him a little bit. I didn't know him as well as you did, but he's just passed away. A very, very talented man, very kind guy. I'm talking about Freddie Cole. Oh, Freddie, yeah. Well, boy, that's um, oh, that's one of those smack in the face moments. Oh, we could do a whole. If you ever want to do a whole show about Freddie, I'd be happy to talk about it. His son Lionel is a, is, is a is a friend. My relationship with Freddie, first of all, Freddie was a remarkable singer and pianist. 
and an outstanding talent. And he had this really complicated relationship, not with Nat. He had a really direct relationship with Nat. It wasn't complicated at all. But he had a complicated relationship with Nat's legacy in that um, he was obviously the beneficiary of it, but he always wanted to be something more than just the, the, the kid brother of Nat Cole, which he was. And he wanted to be known to have a style and a sound of his own, which he did. But at the same time, you know, that legacy was just so huge. And, you know, every, and, and that Freddie once said to me, everybody else is, you know, singing my brother's songs. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> which is a great question. And so, but he knew the, that, that legacy. He knew that canon of work better than anybody. And so, yeah, once a year, they would talk him into doing a tribute to Nat somewhere, particularly on Christmas, and he would do a big hit like the Christmas song. But most of the time, he would find these most obscure and wonderful songs that his brother did once in 1946, and nobody had ever sung them since. I mean, uh, I Miss You So, which he might have learned from the Cats and the Fiddle. That's where Nat got it. But things like that, and, and The Best Man, and uh, The Lonely One, and, 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 you know, just songs that you do not, uh, that were not the big Nat King Cole hits. And so he would do them, and he would do them wonderfully and do them in his own way. So it's like he was acknowledging, you know, his, his familial place, but at the same time transcending it. You know, it's like uh, he wanted to be known, you know, for, for his own accomplishments. And yet at the same time, part of that accomplishment was what he gained from his brother. And so it was a really, that's what I mean by a complex relationship, not with Nat himself and not with his family, but, but with the music, with, with Nat's, you know, songbook. Uh, a fantastic singer fantastic musician and he was great up until the end i think i saw him you know I, I i sound a little bit callous but i heard him at least i'm going to say five times a year for 30 years he would he's the only guy i know that would play every club he would play birdland he would play jazz standard he would play dizzy's so eventually i lost track but if i i, I must have seen him 150 times at least and I, I made a point to see him at every engagement i don't think i missed one you know since 1990 but um, I think probably the last time would have been Valentine's Day. Yeah, he played Valentine's Day, which is just a few weeks before the pandemic. And uh, I think that was the last time he played. And I feel callous. I feel like I should have, you know, been at least making note of making note of the date so that, you know, when this happened, when I was asked about him uh, after he was gone, I would be able to say definitively, oh, the last time I saw him was X, Y, and Z. But um, anyhow, Freddie... Because he had this complex relationship, he never, I, I've never seen almost any interview that he ever gave about being Nat's brother where he talked about it, you know, he talked about his brother directly just because it was such a, a touchy subject. And why shouldn't it be? You know, he, like I said, he did not want to be known just as Nat's kid brother. And I only, uh, and I think I'm, 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 I can say with confidence, I'm the only biographer of Nat that Freddie ever opened up to. And it was gradually, it was not all at once. I, I, I didn't ask him a direct question uh, until we had known each other for at least 10 years until I gained his confidence. And I only did one or two sort of extended interviews over the phone. Freddie never talked that much. I mean, what he was like on stage was um, what he was like off stage as well. He would never talk for, you know, more than a few sentences. He was always just more about communicating with the music. And I did interview him formally a few times over the phone, but most of the time it was, at a, at Dizzy's or at Bird, usually at Birdland. And I would get in one or two questions, something that, you know, was just on my mind about some aspect of Nat's music. And I would ask him about it. And 
I, you know, I would do my Truman Capote impression and just, I didn't even write it down until I got home. I would just make a mental note of what Freddie had said. And he gave me all kinds of tidbits of information that I was able to put into the book. So that's one, you know, it's, it's, it's very gratifying that I was able to do that, but it's very sad that Freddie passed away literally about almost the exact week that I had copies of the book in hand. So, you know, he never got to see the book, which is sad. So yeah, that's it's it's uh disappointing, but I'm so glad but it is gratifying that uh, you know, he, he was able to take me into his confidence and um you know, give some of his wisdom about his brother's music to impart some of that. I'm sure there were there were lots of things that uh, uh died with him. But uh, God, what a talent what a what a incredibly nice man, incredibly gifted man. You get a sense that the the whole family was like that. Nat and all his brothers were, were, were you know, like that. You know? Yeah. I mean, this is right after, we're talking right after Christmas, and really, if anybody was a true Christian, uh, it was Freddie, and I'm sure Nat was too, you know, just, just based on what we know about him. Anyhow, <laughs> sorry. You really pushed the button there when you talk yeah. about, uh, Freddie. Well, don't, uh, don't expect much from me as far as this, but, you know, I, I did a, a video interview with Freddie at a, a jazz club. And what I mean by don't expect much from me is I was pretty green. I had not been interviewing people very long. This footage was lost. It has been lost for a long time. And um, there was a video interview that I did with Freddie at a jazz club in Atlanta that is no longer there called Dante's Down the Hatch. And I'm working on restoring it and bringing it out. So mm. I hope to bring that out. Had, was Freddie at all effusive or, uh, or verbose? I'm, I'm thinking um, it's unlikely he was, but you never know. I mean, he, he was, I mean, it was a brief interview and he was very friendly and, um. Yeah, always friendly, yeah. Yeah, and he, he I remember he, he went over and he, this was really cool. He just, like, kind of spontaneously started to play the piano. <laughs> that was cool. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, no, that is not at all surprising. <laughs> he, um, would much rather be playing the piano than just speaking, you know, or singing. That that is, you know, uh, classic Freddie. Well, what Nat King Cole song to you is the best testament of his talent? Probably hard to say, but maybe his oh, God. most underrated song. To pick one, <laughs> or maybe name a couple. Oh God! <laughs> no, you know, I just spent six hundred pages doing this. <laughs> you can't expect me to answer in one sentence. Oh my God! Oh, I I I really could not, I, and I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not evading the question. Wow, there, there's so many. No, there's not. There's just zillions. I mean, literally, there's some, there's some great great tracks from albums that uh, no, you know, deep cuts from albums that are just you know spectacular. Somehow, there's a song called "Warm and Willing" that was written by Jimmy McHugh, not was super friendly with songwriters like Sinatra. He, he really liked to hang out with songwriters. They were his peeps. And as a, as a way, and he would, he would find songs from things like flop shows, like Jimmy McHugh, both Jimmy McHugh and Jimmy Van Usen were really close to that. And um, McHugh in the later part of his life, of course he was a huge, you know, figure in the jazz age. And he wrote, I can't give you anything but love. And, exactly like you. And at the latter part of his career, he was still writing songs. He wasn't with Dorothy Fields anymore. He was in Hollywood and he was semi-retired 
and he was a very social guy. He looked like Alec Guinness, a uh, big, tall guy with glasses, and he was really part of the Hollywood social scene, and he was forever di- uh, judging beauty contests. Whenever anybody had like a Miss, you know, Fairfax County of 1956, it was usually Jimmy McHugh was one of the judges, but he was still occasionally writing songs, and he wrote a show called Strip for Action. He thought this was like, you know, a, a great idea for a musical show with a lot of female flesh. And uh, it, was, it was a show, it was, it was a, a musical about a burlesque company. And, of course, it got banned in Boston, and it never made it to New York. But Nat recorded, because Nat was close to McHugh, he recorded some of the songs from it, and one of which was Too Young to Go Steady, which became a hit for him from this show that nobody heard of, never made it to New York. And another one was uh, I Just Found Out About Love, which was not a hit single. It was just a single, in fact. I think it was just, you know, I don't think it was ever on an album until much later. And that became one of the all-time great Nat Cole songs. I mean, I think one was a hit and one was a song that, like, one of my litmus tests is songs that subsequent singers include in their Nat King Cole tribute albums. And I just found out about Love. Uh, is a song that Freddie used to do for one. And lots and lots of people, Shirley Horn learned it from that. You know, lots of other singers learned it from that. And that's a kind of example of his sixth sense at finding these songs, which was partly based on his close connection with the songwriters. A few years later, uh, from another show that I can't even remember the title, uh, McHugh wrote a song called Warm and Willing, which long after both of them died was worked into the review Sugar Babies, you know, with Ann Miller and, and, and Mickey Rooney. But uh, Nat did it in 1961. It's one of my favorite Nat records, and it's a, just a deep cut on an album. And, and nobody, nobody knows it, but it's one of those tracks you hear it. And you just So much of Nat's music is like that. You hear it once, and it's two and a half minutes, and you immediately play it again, and then you play it again. And I, sometimes I make the comparison. Some of the uh, my favorite music from the 1960s, some of the great jazz musicians of the 60s, John Coltrane does a version of Out of This World by Harold Arlen, that lasts for 15 minutes. It's a live thing. And that's not even a long track by Coltrane standards. 15 minutes is nothing. But Warm and Willing, I would play that five times. So it, it had the effect of, uh, you know, I, I spent as much time with it at any given uh, moment as I did with John Coltrane playing Out of This World because I had to listen to it five times in a row, even though it's less than three minutes long. Uh, Papa Loves Mambo, which was a hit for Perry Como. Nobody even knows in that version. But uh, it's just one of those tracks you hear. it. You can't believe what he's doing with his voice. You can't believe the orchestration. And you just have to play it over and over again. And that's that's one of the things about Nat's music is you don't only play it, you know, uh, you don't listen to the same album again a month later. You have to play it again right then and there. And the best of the trio things are like that, too. Anyhow, but I digress. (laughs) Well, I have to concur. I, I, I smiled when you mentioned the Nat version of Papa Loves Mambo, because it's so cool, and, and people don't know that one as much, not nearly as much as Perry's. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. Not almost, he rarely did a cover record. It's hard to, unless, if there was a new song from a Broadway musical, he would he would leap into it, you know, or something like that. But rarely, like, when Frank had a hit, well, particularly, not another artist on Capitol Records, but usually... He found the songs directly, just because he knew the songwriters and because he was piped into the, the movie studios and things like that. But rarely, like, 
say a Frankie Lane had a hit, Matt wouldn't say to himself, oh, I got to do my own version of that. Maybe I can sell more records than Frankie. He didn't really think like that, you know? So it's rare to find him doing, you know, a song by another that's associated with another singer. And in fact, I should, I'm, I'm talking out of the type of, I, I should do a comparison and see uh, when Como recorded his as uh, opposed to Nat. But, you know, like I say, it's rare for Nat to take, uh, you know, almost unheard of that Nat would take a song that was a hit for another singer and try to, you know, you know, sell sell his own version of it. You know, just, just you know, what we would call a cover job like that, you know. But yes, but I digress again. <laughs> well, on, uh, since we're talking about songs, there is a book of yours I'm I'm quite enamored with. It's called Stardust Melodies. It's 12 great American songs, and it really, really takes a an interesting look at, at songs that almost everybody knows, almost everybody knows. Would you say, Will, that there is a songwriter that you could argue was the greatest this country has ever had? You know, you can't. It's not like, you know, even in baseball or, or sports, you know, where people have statistics, you know, and there's the same statistics in, in the music business don't really add up, you know, because, uh, you know, you can't say this guy sold more records than that guy and that makes him greater. American music is just so diverse that uh, uh, what made Harold Ireland great, what made Duke Ellington great, you know, Cole Porter was great for a different reason, you know, as, as you know, Hank Williams was great for a different reason, you know. Uh, it's it's hard to say, but there, there's so many great songwriters. And the, the purpose of that book was to talk about how, you know, the diversity of American music and the diversity of interpretations. And it was the idea uh, the American Songbook is unique. What we call the Great American Songbook is unique because it's the only body of music. The, the fact that at, at the prime, you know, in sort of the primary years that the music was being created, the profession of songwriter and the profession of, of singer and entertainer were two different jobs, and they never were the same. So almost never, even even in like sort of outlier cases like Harold Arlen and Hoagy Carmichael and Johnny Mercer, uh, you know, they were the exceptions rather than the rule. And you you never but the idea that the singer and the songwriter were two different people led to this kind of plethora of interpretations, you know, over the years. And when Irving Berlin like was writing for you know, Annie the example I use is Irving Berlin writing Annie Get Your Gun, he was writing the songs, you know, specifically for Ethel Merman. He knew Merman was, you know, gonna play the lead, but he also knew that Bing Crosby was gonna sing them on his radio show. And he knew that you know, Tommy Dorsey was going to play them. In fact, Les Brown had a big hit with uh, I Got the Sun in the Morning with Doris Day singing. And he knew, you know, all the swing bands would play them. He knew Count Basie, uh, you know, was playing Blue Skies, you know, which is a vintage German Berlin even then. But he also knew that Guy Lombardo was going to play those songs. And so when you think about it, Guy Lombardo and Count Basie playing the same song, I mean, that's, that's as diverse as you can get right there. You know, it's two very different approaches, even though they're both part of the big band era and the book part of the uh, great American songbook. And, you know, that's, you know, the fact that Willie Nelson could come along and sing Irving Berlin's in a country style, Irving Berlin songs in a country style in the 1970s, you know, which is so, uh, and Berlin still being alive in the seventies, it's just a remarkable thing. And, and, and this is the old, and I always make this point and nobody's contested it. This is the only music where that's a key part of, uh, what makes it great. You know, the fact that the songs can be done in a zillion different ways. You know, we can't say that about Mozart 
And we can't really say that about Bob Dylan. I mean, you really, you could do a version of Don't Think Twice that's slightly different from the way Dylan sang it or the way, say, Johnny Cash sang it. But really, you can't, you know, nobody's, the, 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 the other kinds of music just are not set up to do that. And, and it's like the songs of the Beatles. It's not just their performance. It's not just an, an inextricably linked to their performance. But, you know, most of those songs were written as records. They were composed in the studio using the studio as part of the compositional process. And therefore, you know, once in a while, somebody can do an interesting jazz take on a Beatles song, but they're not set up to do that, whereas the music of Irving Berlin is. You know, it's written to be, it's written the music is, is a template upon which, you know, you put your interpretation and it's supposed to be very different from one singer to the next. You know, both, you know, Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra both do one for my baby, whereas, you know, Sinatra's is the classic saloon song, you know, ballad and uh, Tony's is a rollicking up tempo. You know, he made a point to do it like a rock and roll number, as he said at the time, you know, fast and, 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 and loud and exciting. Very different. He was trying, he was deliberately trying to find a way that was as different from Frank's as possible, you know, and they're both great. They're both valid. And, uh, that, that, that to me, that's the most essential point about the songbook is that this is the only music in, in the history of the universe that we know of where that is the case, where you could, you can take a song and do it any way you like. I make the point that, um, in the sixties when the Boston Nova was a big thing, Ella Fitzgerald did a, a, Brazilian style arrangement of Stardust, and she called it the Stardust Bossa Nova. But at the same time, as as great as the music of Jobim is, Antonio Carlos Jobim, you can't take Girl from Ipanema and do it as anything other than a Bossa Nova. It would just be ridiculous. You know, you can't do it. Sometimes in my lectures, I make the point is, can you imagine trying to do the Girl from Ipanema as a, as a, as a polka? Paul and Tan and Young and Lovely, the girl from the Nima goes walking and then, you know what I'm saying? You'd have to call it the girl from Dusseldorf. It becomes a fundamentally different song when you change the rhythm. Whereas with Stardust, you know, you can do it any way you like. You can make it a bossa nova. I, I don't think I want to hear the Stardust polka, but uh, you know, maybe you could. You know, sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights. No. Anyhow, <laughs> that's a new idea. The Stardust polka. But anyhow, yes. But, yeah, but I digress again. I gotta, I gotta stop saying that. Uh, it's just a cue, so you know I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the next question. But yes, it's a great cue, and I wondered if we could get you to sing. And <laughs> no, that's about as much as uh, I'm uh, prepared to do. We didn't uh, even I need a string ask. orchestra. Get me a string orchestra, and I'll show up. <laughs> I sing in the key of X. But yeah. Well, you mentioned in there Bob Dylan, and I would be curious to get your take what did you think about him doing those three albums of of mostly frank sinatra songs i like them i mean they're okay i i I played them and they came out i can't say i played them a lot since they're all right i don't i know some guys were really like offended by them i i think they're kind of they're just interesting they're an interesting they they prove my point do i you know want to listen to them again and again no the same thing with Brian Wilson's take on George Gershwin. I enjoyed it. It's very different. I, I am very glad that people don't destroy the Gershwin originals and replace them with the Brian Wilson versions, <laughs> to put it mildly. But again, I think it's valid, you know, and I, I, I heard Brian Wilson. I've never heard Dylan. Did Dylan tour with those songs? I don't even know. That's a good question. I never heard about Dylan doing them in concert. I believe all through the years he was doing those albums, he was continuing to sing his regular you know, set of his own songs. 
But if Dylan, actually, I would find it interesting enough that if Dylan were to do a concert of that music, I would try to go to it. You know, Dylan doing those interviews. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and valid. But, uh, I'm, I'm, again, nobody, the point is that you don't throw away the originals. You know, you keep the originals so that other people come along and do their versions, whether those versions are, you know, way out of the box, like Brian Wilson or Bob Dylan, or whether they're much more traditional, like Michael Feinstein. Feinstein is an example of a musician who finds new ways to do songs that are, you know, still much more authentic to, you know, so-called authentic to the tradition. And he's amazing for that. He finds new ways to do the songs that you've heard a trillion times. And, you know, they still, you know, sound uh, wonderful, fresh and new. The, the Harry Connick Cole Porter album, which came out about a year ago. Uh, oh, no, it was on Broadway about a year ago. Not radical, not like a Bob Dylan or, or, or a Brian Wilson, but yeah, it was a whole other take on, on you know, most of those songs were, were, you know, really, really imaginative approach to, uh, you know, songs that we have already, you know, known and loved for, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. On the note of Dylan, he was doing, he would do anywhere from one to like six of the American songbook songs, like when he was in Savannah, Georgia. He only did one, but he closed he closed the show with Moon River. So, oh, that must have been great because that's kind of like a folk song, anyhow. That was written, you know. He that was written not for. I mean, even though it was a hit for Andy Williams, it was it was written. I mean, unless I, I I'm I'm talking out of my hat. I remember that that was specifically written to be sung by Audrey Hepburn. So it was written for a very small range and to have the quality of a folk song. So it's perfectly appropriate for Dylan, even though, of course, the guy that had the hit with it, Andy Williams, had you know a very a super smooth, super professional voice, uh, which might be ironic or not. But yeah, no, Moon River would be a great song for Dylan. I wish I could have heard that. I've only heard Dylan live like two or three times, uh, and not, and it was it was years ago. It wasn't any time when he was in that folk period. I mean, that you know uh, songbook period. Dylan, the first song he did. There was this rumor that he was about to do a Sinatra project. And the first song that popped up on YouTube of Dylan doing a Sinatra song was the theme from The Cardinal. And I, what the hell is the title of it? Not If I Stay or If I, Ah, we should look it up. What is the name? You know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, like bef you're saying before before he came out with the... the ver right, before... Theme from the Cardinal, Dylan. The song is like on the tip of my. <laughs> is it stay with? I think it is stay with me. Did I say stay with me? I was right. Uh, it was a Sinatra single, and it's this kind of weird, rangy song by Carolyn Lee. Yeah, it is stay with me. I actually got that right. And it's it's got all these religious references in it because it's um it almost sounds like a prayer. So again, it's an atypical kind of American song. So this. Turned up in a Dylan concert and somebody stuck it on YouTube. And this was like, you know, five or six years ago before all those albums, just, just before the first album came out. And it was like the first example of Dylan doing a Sinatra song. And I was like, wow, you know, the way he did it, the way he knew the Sinatra canon well enough to find that song, because that is pretty obscure. It was only on a single and then it was on one of the pickup albums. I think it was like Sinatra 65 or something. Not at all a well-known uh, Sinatra song. So the fact that he even knew about it shows that he had really done, you know, his, uh, his homework, that he really looked into, uh, this, this music, you know, and he was not taking it lightly. He was really, uh, doing a, a deep dive into it. But yes, 
You mentioned a couple of names of people, Michael Feinstein, Harry Connick Jr. Who would you say is doing the best job at keeping this music, the great American songbook, alive? Well, all those guys. I mean, the, the, the whole point is the music has always been diverse. So the idea is, you know, there's some people that, that you know do the songs very authentically and faithfully, and some people that do the songs a little more outrageously. There's a every year there's like a, a great crop of um, you know young jazz singers. It's, it's hard to believe. Wait, Cecil McLaurin Salvant is now over thirty, but I mean, <laughs> up until uh, the whole point, she was in her twenties. She was like you know the best, the best you know twenty-something jazz singer that there is, and she's got what is it two or three Grammys already to prove it. I love the Cyril I love Cecil Salvant. I love Veronica Swift. She's, I think she's 26 currently, and her second album is about to come out. She's, she's phenomenal. She's the one, she's the singer who best and most directly extends the legacy of uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Anita O'Day, uh, that, that kind of singing. There's this amazing 17 year old jazz singer in New York, uh, who's about to release her first album. I did the notes called Anna East Reno, and she's, she's a phenomenon, and she has this, amazingly dark and mysterious voice. And you can't believe she's 17 years old, but she's, uh, uh, you know, truly someone who's going to take the music into whole new places in the future. But no, I, I, I love all those guys. I love Nick King. There's tons. And when you say today, I know you're not specifically asking for people 30 and, uh, uh, younger, but, um, no, there's all kinds of great singers today. Jack Jones, who's, I'm going to say 82 has a new album about to come out. And, and he's a guy that's never, never slowed down. And he's always been doing something amazing. He always has, has incredible chops and always has incredible ideas. He hasn't played, I mean, nobody's played in New York in a while. I'd love for Jack to, to play, uh, you know, Feinstein's or the Carlisle or, or whatever, but I'd love to see him in New York, uh, in the post pandemic world. He's in a great example of, um, you know, a veteran singer who's still turning doing great work. Tony Bennett is still doing great work. And people who are sort of in the middle, like uh, Diana Krall, uh, are, are doing great work. You know, it's, 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 the music is really thriving. You know, there's so many people who are doing uh, amazing things with it, you know, and it's still, you know, part of everybody's consciousness, you know. When Harry Connick can come along and do an album that, uh, either do a project that's a Broadway show and an album, and I think it's also a TV special, you know, it just shows that the music really hasn't faded. It's still part of everybody's consciousness it's still you know it's still part of the mix it's still part of the, the cultural my thoughts a little wait a little uh have a sip of water sure thing well one of the last concerts that i saw before everything started shutting down it was february 14th i saw tony bennett and on valentine's day and it was just like oh nice I keep going back because, you know, you can't see any live shows. I keep going back to that in my mind. Every time I think about it, I uh, I smile a little. And there have been a couple of times it's it's made me, I've thought back on it, and I, I've kind of gotten misty-eyed. No. We all look forward. <laughs> yeah, I saw him in 19. I saw him, he played Radio City, I think it was May. June, May or June of 19 was the most recent time I've seen him in concert. I interviewed him a few times in the last few years and uh, talked to him on the phone a few times. Yeah, he seems to he turned 92 in uh, August. I was in touch with him on that day. And yeah, he seems to be great. I'm sure he's, God, if there's anybody who gets restless and, and hates to, 
be out of action. It's Tony. I'm sure this is killing him, you know. And the same the same way it was for Freddie. Freddie hated. I know that more than anything, that's what killed Freddie the chant. But you know, the 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 fact that he couldn't get up in front of people and, and entertain them, you know, that must have really been devastating for him. I'm not, it's not surprising that he didn't make it, you know. Hmm. But uh, yes, yes. So that's a good memory. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I remember the last week before the pandemic, I was supposed to speak with Melissa Erica, who's become a friend. She had planned this event for months. We were going to talk about the music of Michelle Legrand, who's one of her good. Uh, her, her mentors and uh, inspirations, and we had a whole Legrand program that was going to be. It was canceled at the very last minute, just when the um, you know the lockdown started. Oh boy! Anyhow, yes, and I was going to see some stuff on that Saturday. We had, and there was going to be stuff on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, you're hitting me in a very tender place right now. <laughs> but go on. We're, we got to pick up the program. We don't want. We yeah, don't want people we're crying. <laughs> talking about the future rather than the. Yeah, yeah, who knows? Hopefully it's going to come back gradually, you know, one club at a time. You know, once the, the vaccine is distributed enough, you know, I'm not saying anything nobody, any, anybody doesn't know. But yeah, New York is definitely going to be at the center of it once again. You know, there's no, no other place that's equipped to, you know, that's set up to, to be that, you know. And in fact, here's my wacky radical thought. Already tons of retail spaces all over the universe are closing because of Jeff Bezos, right? Because everybody wants to order shoes online. So why do you need a shoe store when you can just, you know, click a box and get the same shoes you, you ordered six months ago when, you know, you know, you need new shoes. So, you know, a million things are like that. You don't really need retail spaces. And on top of that, during the pandemic, everybody's realizing that it's perfectly uh, acceptable to work from home. So why do these corporations have to spend zillions of dollars for expensive uh, midtown real estate when people would just as soon work at home. So what's going to go into all that space? My prediction is that there's going to be even more in terms of perform, you know, experiential spaces like performance venues. And there's going to be even more performance venues and clubs and theaters and particularly in midtown, you know, cause that's already where the nexus is. And that's what that, that real estate is good for. You know, you don't, you don't need a target on, you know, 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. I mean, you, yeah, you probably do need restaurants to feed people that are going to see, you know, music or a show, but you don't need a Target there. You don't need, uh, you don't really need Macy's and Herald Square, although, of course, that's a tradition, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But really, you know, that whole area is, is just ripe to become even more of a theatrical and an entertainment district. You know, it's going to become even more than it was uh, before the pandemic. Here, this is... Wilski's prediction. <laughs> Just because it's the best thing to do with all that space, you know? Yeah. Something you can't, that Jeff Bezos can't, you know, deliver to you, that Instacart can't deliver to you, you know? Yeah. You heard it from here first, folks. <laughs> right. I, I appreciate you, you, you having such an optimistic view. We need this at the beginning of the year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I really, I, I, I've been saying that for years, you know, because, you see all these like shoe stores and, you know, cigar stores or whatever that are closed, even, you know, especially since the meltdown in 08 and, uh, you know, these empty real estate, real estate spaces. So like I say, it's going to be, you know, a, an experiential space rather than a strictly a retail space, you know, but I digress and I repeat. <laughs> <laughs> trying not to do either. I'm trying not to digress or repeat. I'm doing both. <laughs>
I'm someone who is a liner note junkie, and you've written more than 600. I've seen your name on a few of them. How did you get into that? Liner notes? Yeah. It's interesting. And different points in my, I'm just speaking personally. When I did my first book, it just happened that the CD was a brand new thing. And people were putting out, you know, classic music on CD and they needed liner notes. So I just happened to come along. I can't claim that it, it, it has anything to do with uh, uh, any particular plan or any particular talent of mine. But, um, oh, but yeah, it just happened to be the technological moment. You know, it was in my favor at that, at that point. But the converse is, that the technological moment, you know, doesn't always benefit one. <laughs> In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. Now, you know, the 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 preponderance of social media, uh, which is overwhelming, you know, for the first say twenty years of the the uh, well, not even twenty years, maybe fifteen years of you know the the internet is a real thing. The internet and the traditional news uh, media outlets existed happily, you know, like. Uh, the New York Times online, the journal where I write online, you know, the newspapers. Yeah, they were they were doing their online versions and they were unaffected by uh, social media. But for the last like five or six years now, you know, uh, Zuckerberg is eating everybody's lunch. And this is the reason why so many newspapers are not doing well. You know, it's just because people are turning away from professional writers and professional editors just to anybody posting anything about, you know, uh, this is, I don't want to get too political, but this is an era when, you know, somebody, and, and again, not being political, but somebody like the, the, the soon-to-be former president who, and I'm not casting a judgment, but the fact that, you know, he can amass, uh, he was the first president of who got to where he is and was because of social media, because of just a Twitter presence that was, which came out of the fact that he had that reality show. But, um, you know, he was the only, he was the president that was made by social media. And that is kind of, you know, a harbinger of, of, uh, what's to come when you just let sort of that public opinion and, you know, Twitter trends and Facebook trends and YouTube trends, when you just let that go without anybody sort of, uh, I don't want to say controlling it, but without anybody sort of, uh, uh, being responsible for it. And, you know, this, this is, you know, he's the Twitter president, or he was the Twitter president. And the social media have, have put a lot of us out of business. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a grim fact. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do other things. But um, writing, if anybody out there wants to write about the arts, I would say, uh, no. <laughs> Find something else to do. Learn how to write code, because arts writing has, has, has been taken out of the hands of the professionals. And, uh, boy... Uh, I, you know, I would say be an artist. You know, there's definitely, there's always going to be a need for artists. There's always going to be a need for singers. There's always going to be a need for musicians and arrangers and songwriters. And yeah, do that. But anybody who, you know, there, there's not going to be another Will Freewell, which is possibly a good thing, just because, you know, there's nothing to support it now. You, you, you can't, you can't do it. You just can't be, uh, somebody, you can't be a chronicler, a historian, a critic, just because, you know, like I say, Mark Zuckerberg is eating your lunch. Anyhow, this is getting, now I'm swinging the other way. Two minutes ago, I was too optimistic, and now I'm too grim. <laughs> well, But really, my main thing, and I, I should get this in, and if anybody's interested, um, I, I won't do it without your permission, but I'll, I'll give you an email. 
but um or or a uh, a euro but um no for the last month for the last year during the pandemic i've been doing um a series of shows i call clip joints over the internet and that's become my you know sort of go to profession uh, especially since i can't write about live music anymore there's not enough of it to write about so that's become like a new thing and so those of us like my friend Elisa Gardner who's one of the top theater critics she now works for a website she started with some other theater critics where they're covering the theatrical scene on their own dime and it's 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 a glorious thing but these are all you know critics that lost their gigs at newspapers because of uh you know Facebook and because of uh, Twitter so yeah anyhow but I digress again and and not in in a less positive way <laughs> well oh. to go out on a positive note what would you say is the greatest thing about being Wilfried Wall? Not just limited to your to your getting to talk to guys like Paul Leslie. <laughs> You're sweet. That's the greatest thing about being Wilfried Wall. <laughs> That's very kind. The great thing is, you know, it's funny when I I look back at my life. The thing that really stands out is, well, of course, when I was writing about Sinatra, I did get to meet him once, and it was the whole conversation took place in less time than it does, you know, to describe it. Literally, our whole association was 10 seconds. Somebody just introduced us and that was it. But virtually everybody else, unless they died, you know, young like Billie Holiday, I met everybody. I knew, I met Sarah Vaughn once. I never got to meet Ella Fitzgerald. That's true. But I knew Mel, I knew Mel Torme really well. He was a good friend. Tony Bennett is a really good friend. Shirley Horn I knew. Joe Williams. I bet Betty Carter once or twice. I can't say I knew her really well, but virtually Carol Sloan. And I knew them to the point where they knew my work and they knew me. Barbara Cook once sent me this lovely note saying that she really liked what I had written about her. And she said that she had never written this to a critic before. Uh, even Mr. Holden, who's a good friend and is a wonderful writer, he wrote about her all the time. And he, she actually invited me to, a, to her last record session where Lee Musiker was on piano. And you know, stuff like that. Yeah, those are the moments when I enjoy being Will Friedwald, when I can talk about, uh, you know, having known people like that. Hugh Hefner was a friend. Uh, you know, you know the, the amazing people I got to meet over the years. Bill Boggs, way, way high up on that list. I know you know Bill. Mark Murphy was a good friend, you know. Almost every major singer in the music I got to meet one, one way or another or, or, you know, become a friend. Jack Jones, you know. Tony Bennett, Tony Bennett, most of all, he's probably the guy I've been closest to because, as you know, we wrote a book together, which was really a pleasure, both a, pre a pleasure and a privilege. I had to make a special uh, mention of him, of course. But yes, Freddie Cole, we talked about him. Anyhow, continue. Yes. Lots of great people. Lots of great people. I was going to just say that there have been so many people who have been on this show who have been very, very uh, gushing about you. They've said, when are you going to interview Will Friedwald? But Bill Boggs loves you. <laughs> he just loves you. Oh, Bill's a really nice man. <laughs> well, on this show, I always like to close the show as kind of a, an open forum, if you will. So, the, you know, the interesting thing about the Internet is you can reach people around the world. What would you like to say in closing to anybody who's tuned in? Keep listening. There's so much good stuff out there. You know, I mean, it helps if you can. I mean, I like to think that my books are kind of like a guide to what you should pay attention to. But really, there's just so much stuff out there. And there's, 
you know, so every time, you know, every time I turn around, I hear a new voice I never heard, a new song I never heard. I was watching a, yeah, I, 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 on my clip joint, I played a whole bunch of uh, Christmas programs that I hadn't watched in total in a while. And we, and, and, um, I have a, there's a 1970 Tom Jones did a Christmas special where the guest was Ella Fitzgerald. And it wasn't all Christmas songs, but you know, they did some Christmas songs, but it was on Christmas day, 1970. And, um, it ends with, and it has Ella doing spirituals and Christmas songs, which she never did on any other television show. And it ends with Tom Jones doing a newly breakfast, a song by Anthony Newley and Leslie Breckis that I had never heard before. So it's like, you know, as, as much as I've much time as I spent with this music, I'm always hearing something new, whether it's something old that I never heard before or, you know, a new song that's just being written or a new singer that's just emerging. I'm always hearing new stuff. It's not, it's, it's never just rote, you know, it's never just the same stuff. Uh, you know, there's always something new to be learned, something new to be surprised by, you know, the, the more time you spend with it. And that's what I would say as your lesson from for 2021. <laughs> well, Sir Will, thank you so much for starting us off, getting the year going with a, a great energetic interview. I've enjoyed everything, the side streets, main streets, the digressions, all of it. Thank you. All right. Well, yes. Keep in touch. Don't be a stranger, as they say. All right, sir. All right. Maybe next time we will we will be face-to-face and everyone will get to see our smiling little faces. <laughs> well, my, my ending slogan is usually John chapter 8, verse 11, go forth and sin no more. But lately I've been saying, go stay put and sin no more. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, you have to... Update the Gospels once in a while. Okay, yes, we will talk. And Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. <laughs> But this is Goodbye.